and welcome to my podcast, Where the Dark Corners Are. Hello, hello. I am Vina, and I am your Dark Travels hostess. Tonight, we're going to discuss a subject near and dear to my heart. Trick-or-treating. I remember trick-or-treating around the old neighborhood, wanting to stay out all night. Just loving it. I love Halloween. Halloween is my jam. I carry it in my heart all year round. But of course, my mother would never allow that, the whole trick-or-treating, staying all night scenario. But it was trick-or-treating that was sincerely the highlight of my youth, being a kid. I mean, and seriously, let's be honest, who doesn't want free candy? So tonight, in honor of my childhood favorite tradition, let's discuss the evolution and development of trick-or-treating And then we'll close with the motherfucker that almost destroyed it. Yeah. It's a... I gotta tell you guys, it really made me angry reading about this fucking guy. Alright, so. As we all know, the origins of Halloween begins with the Celtics with the celebration of Samhain. We're talking about 2,000 years ago. The Celtics, which were primarily living in Ireland but also lived in other parts of the United Kingdom, as well as northern France. Now, Samhain is the night the Celtics believed that the dead returned to Earth. So on this sacred night, people would have bonfires, they would offer up some sacrifices, and basically do what they can to honor the dead. Now, over the course of hundreds of years, people began dressing as ghosts, demons, and Basically, other scary-ass creatures, sometimes even as animals, using animal fur and providing some performances in exchange for food and drink. This custom became known as mumming. Those who refused the mummers, on the other hand, would then fall victim to a prank or a trick. Hence, they either coughed up a treat or they got a trick. So, trick or treat. Choose your your poison. By 1080, the Catholic Church tried to face out paganism with celebrating their newly created, but seems like the old pagan celebrations, and determined that November 2nd would be known as All Souls Day and a day for honoring the dead. So again, the church playing little, little games, trying to act like we're the same to welcome new members into their church. And mumming would take on the name souling. But basically, it's the same tradition with the new name. And this one actually kind of has a little bit of a Catholic twist, a church twist, if you will. This time, it would be poor people 
going around to visit the houses of the wealthier families in order to receive pastries or treats called soul cakes in exchange for a promise to pay for the souls of the rich homeowners' dead relatives. The practice would later be taken up by children who would also go from door to door asking for gifts such as food, money, or, this one's a little bit of a surprise, ale, like booze, guys. So, this concept kind of deviates in various places, like in Scotland and Ireland, people would take up part of the tradition called guising, which they would actually dress up in a costume and accept offerings from various households. So they're not necessarily begging like the church is having poor people do, which just, it's just beyond me that this was something that everyone was cool with. But either way, but rather than agreeing to pray for the dead of the wealthy people's families, they would sing a song, recite a poem, or tell a joke, or actually even perform some type of trick in order to receive the treat. So again, the treat would be anything from any type of food, fruits, nuts, and sometimes money, coins. Now, if this sounds like something one did in celebrations of Guy Fawkes Night, which was also known as Bonfire Night, that's because it basically is. So my British counterparts, my, my British listeners, if this sounds familiar, it is. And as the British knows, on November 5th is the night that they kind of, you know, celebrate the fact that the gunpowder plot of 1605 was discovered and foiled. So to honor this moment, British children would go around wearing masks, carrying effigies, and begging for pennies, you know, roaming the streets, and basically saying a penny for the guy in reference to Guy Fawkes, who they were celebrating. Now, about this time, you know, the British are spreading, the French are spreading, and they're making their way into the New World. So the concept of sewing and Halloween, you know, begins floating around the colonies, makes it, you know, cross the pond, so to speak. And as we know from past podcasts, some areas begin to celebrate it more than others, and there's different forms of celebrations for it. But it's not until those fleeing the Irish potato famine in the 1840s when the Irish came by the millions to America that Halloween and Sowin become very, very popular. Now, by the early 1900s, Irish and Scottish communities basically bring back the concept of souling and guising. They kinda, it's, it's kind of the same concept in the United States. But by the 1920s, pulling pranks doing gags, playing tricks, actually becomes the preference, if you will, of the Halloween activity choice for the young people. So they're not necessarily interested in getting the candy, 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 candy <laughs> that you know, I was, you know, in the 1980s, 60 years later. And, but their focus is more about 
you know, just kind of destruction, actually. In fact, if anybody who has ever watched the movie, meet me in St. Louis and remembers the young character, Tootie, and her evil prank of putting a dead body lookalike on the trolley car tracks, this is exactly what I'm talking about. We're talking, you know, these teenagers would basically roam the neighborhood, steal stuff, steal their neighbor's gates off the hinges. They would steal dead bodies. They would, you know... um lay stuffed bodies across railroad tracks. In fact, this was this ended up you know, causing a major freak out in Kentucky in, in 1879. Granted, it's a little backwards, but you get the concept. In 1900s, the medical students were doing weird things. In fact, at the University of Michigan, some students stole the headless corpse from the, uh, you know, the anatomy lab and basically used it as a decoration the building so here people are getting really creative not necessarily trick-or-treating going around soling or mummying or guising they're just out there causing mischief a little mayhem and in this as time goes on and with the invention of the automobile and them being able to become more uh, mobile if you will People start removing manhole covers from the streets. They start, you know, slashing tires, start erecting fake detour signs to confuse motorists. They actually start setting fires, breaking glass, tripping pedestrians. I mean, I, I mean and if that's not enough, people were even filling up bags of flour to basically hit people in the face with them or fill them with ashes and I just, it's kind of basically, you know what it really sounds like? It basically sounds like a purge. It, 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 they just go around this one night, burn shit, assault people, and kind of just vent, if you will. And it's like anything goes. But all of this basically comes to a screeching halt in 1933. Halloween 1933 will become known as Black Halloween because... Basically, what happens is the purging goes too far for this time in America. Hundreds of boys will end up flipping cars over. Some of them even saw off telephone poles. Others, I mean, just uh, uh, hundreds of acts of vandalisms across the country. And in 1933, we're literally five years after the market crash, after Black Tuesday. So we're in the Great Depression. People can't afford to have these kind of vandalisms happen and get their things fixed the next day. There's no car insurance at this time. So people are really, really pissed to the point that they actually consider, as a nation, canceling Halloween. Now, some people didn't want to do that. Some cities didn't want to do that. And, you know, thank God, they kind of started thinking and focusing on what are better ideas. So what ended up happening was... Instead of banning Halloween altogether, some communities begin to actually organize productive activities for the, the young kids to actually participate and manage instead of allowing them to run crazy, do all these, you know, vandalism and, and not so, you know, <laughs> basically give them the opportunity to focus on something far more productive. Now... This is the beginnings of when they start organizing trick-or-treat parties or trick-or-treating in general. 
costume parades. And believe it or not, this is actually how and why America starts to develop the concept of haunted houses. Basically, you have the kids run these things, especially the haunted houses. You keep them busy. You keep them off the streets. They're no longer purging. They're no longer causing havoc. And they, and they bite. They bite really hard. They start organizing not only haunted houses, but they also begin organizing haunted trails. And, and, and in addition to all of this, you know, we're talking carnivals. We're talking almost a concept of, well, like a, a Halloween pub crawl. Like some police, some houses, some people would say, okay, at my house, they can get this. And if they move on to the neighbor's house, they can get that. And, you know, they're even to the point where we're going to pass out costumes here at my house. You pass out a treat. They're going to pass out something else at your house. So it's almost like a pub crawl, a pre, a non-alcoholic pub crawl. And eventually this concept of of going from house to house to house and getting this and getting that becomes and develops what we know as trick-or-treating. Now, the actual term trick-or-treating is believed to have actually been published in some sort of printing press. I couldn't actually find whether it was a magazine or a newspaper, but in Alberta, Canada. So it's not necessarily just in America where they're having this problem. We're developing these wonderful solutions and keeping the spirit of Halloween alive. But it's also in Canada. So from the 1930s into obviously the early 1940s, kids, when they go to these homes, they're, you know, they're given homemade cookies. They're given homemade pieces of cake or fruits, coins, nuts, and even simple toys. However, all of this comes to a screeching halt thanks to World War II and thanks to the sugar rations. But once the war is over, once the sugar rations are done, Halloween makes a screaming comeback. And by 1951, the term trick-or-treating becomes a household name in American pop culture thanks to Peanuts. You know, Snoopy and the gang, Charles Schultz, actually runs a comic strip using that term, and it just takes off here in America. And to seal the deal with the term trick-or-treat, in 1952, Walt Disney actually releases a cartoon called Trick-or-Treat, in which Donald Duck and his nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, are the main characters. So the word is getting out. America's just biting and as everyone is garnishing this new found happiness for the concept, this also includes the candy companies because they start developing the idea of potentially profiting off of Halloween by mass producing affordable candy and advertising it as such. So, I mean, nowadays we know we can go to the store, you know, in August. <laughs> To start picking out our Halloween candy. But this is the beginnings in the 1950s. This is literally the beginning of the candy companies, you know, rubbing their grubby little hands and like, we can make this a big holiday. And they do. It, it does happen. And let's be honest, buying a bag of candy is far more convenient than slaving over a hot stove, making treats for a bunch of strange kids. But America actually takes her time in accepting this convenient little treats. So in the course of about 15 to 20 years later in the 1970s, 
does the concept of plastic wrap candies take take over Halloween? So people were, for the most part, no longer making homemade treats. And, and I mean, I don't know how many people have a lot of kids coming to their house, but let's be honest, if you buy three or four bags of 150 treats versus having to make three or four 150 treats, it it is legitimately far more convenient. So on top of everything else, aside from no longer having to worry about slaving away to make Halloween treats, the primary reason why handing out candy already wrapped becomes popular is safety. So let's talk about why safety became the leading reason behind buying pre-made candy treats. Well, the short answer, because some people can be douchebags and ruin nice things, like trust. Trust during Halloween. Let's talk about Helen Pafel. In 1964, this New York housewife did not think older children should be trick-or-treating and decided to give out rat poison and dog biscuits to the kids she felt were too old to be trick-or-treating. Clincher here, guys. Her 16 and 15-year-old, who some people would consider is too old to be trick-or-treating, were out and about trick-or-treating themselves. Either way, she gets her ass arrested, and when they questioned her, she was like, I was just joking, and I only gave it out to the older kids, and, you know, can anybody take a joke? Well, no. Not especially when you're handing out poison. But thankfully, the older children were smart enough not to go anywhere near poisoning. So nobody died. Helen didn't kill anybody. But she did get sent to Central Ipslip Hospital for a mental evaluation. And she was charged with two counts of child endangerment. Now, she initially pleads not guilty. And her trial begins. And in the middle of her trial, she's like, fuck it, I'm guilty. And the judge ends up suspending her sentence in 1965. And for her stupidity and her, uh, I don't even know what, she gets two years. But this is absolutely nothing compared to what happened on Halloween 1974. Guys, this is absolutely horrible. So let's talk about the man who almost killed Halloween. Ronald Clark O'Brien, this fucking guy. He was married with two children. His eldest was a boy named Timothy. Timothy was eight. His youngest was a daughter named Elizabeth. She was five. He and his wife lived in Deer Park, Texas. And Ronald worked as an optician at Texas State Optical in Sharpstown, Houston. He was also a deacon at a Second Baptist Church, where apparently he sang in the choir and was in charge of the local bus program. So, just that just slayed me, by the way. That side, those side facts about this fucking guy slayed me. Now, good old Ron was heavily in debt, owing about $100,000, which is a lot now. And even more so in 1974, when he works out a rather deplorable notion on how to raise the money. Because he initiates part of his deplorable plan in January of 1974, when he puts life insurance policies out on both of his children. 
And then he basically waits to execute it on Halloween. Now, through the course of the year, he continues to buy more policies to the point that by mid-October, each child is worth $30,000. So Timothy's worth thirty, Elizabeth's worth thirty, and all the while he keeps the, the coverage of himself and his wife to a minimum. In addition to buying the policies in August, Ronald starts his unsuccessful attempts to buy cyanide where he worked. And then he tries to buy it from a company called Arco Chemical Company. And, I mean, he even calls a friend there and they're like chit-chatting about the variety and availability of cyanide. And he's trying, trying here, trying there, to the point where, literally right before Halloween, Ronald rolls up on Curtin Matheson Scientific Company, a chemical outlet in Houston, and he's still trying to negotiate. I just only need a little bit. I don't need a whole lot. And, I mean, he's even, when he realizes that they only sell a large quantity of cyanide, and I don't even think this is legal anymore, <laughs> but... Even then, he's like, well, I don't need a whole lot. Where can I find a little bit? Well, at the same time as he's doing his side night shopping, you know, looking for that cheaper scenario, he even starts talking to his coworkers, is like openly discussing the use of cyanide among his fellow employees and later that his financial health would soon undergo a remarkable recovery. He's like, I'm going to come into some money, guys. I mean, this, I just, because you know what this is, what's about to happen. I know what's about to happen. It, there, It's just the word deplorable is, is insufficient, if you will. But here he waits, here he's shopping, here he's talking about it, and then Halloween 1974 arrives. It was a Thursday, cloudy night. The O'Brien family goes to dine at the home of friends of theirs called the Bates family. The children of both families are very excited to go trick-or-treating together in the Bates' neighborhood. And it's actually just Ronald and Mr. Bates who accompanies the children. And Mr. Bates, during Ron's trial, would later testify that Ronald would run up to the house with the kids and wait for the door to answer and that he was kind of doing this up until they came to a house owned by a family named the Melvins. Now, the Melvins weren't home. The lights were off. Nobody answered the door. And the children, you know, they knock, 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 uh, seeing and hearing nobody. They take off. But Mr. Bates would later testify that while the children ran to the next-door neighbor's house, Ronald hangs back, kind of hiding behind a wall that apparently was on the porch of the house for a few seconds before he rejoined the group and claiming that Melvin had actually answered the door and gave him five pixie sticks for the children for their trick-or-treating. Now at this point, Ronald's like, hey guys, look what I got for you guys, but I'm going to hold on to them. And... And the kids are like, cool. I mean, why should they suspect anything? No probs. You do that. We're trick-or-treating. And sadly, it starts to rain, cutting their trick-or-treating short. So they head back to the Bates' house. Once at the house, Ronald actually hands out all the pixie sticks. 
And he even gives one of the pixie sticks to a 10-year-old boy whom he had recognized from his church who was trick-or-treating at the Bates house. So, I mean, this guy is literally handing, this is unreal, he's just handing this shit out to kids. And while at the Bates house, one of the Bates children actually tried to open the pixie stick and Ronald sees this. The man literally leaps over the coffee table to prevent him from doing so and basically, you know, weirds everybody the fuck out like, are you okay, Ron? So, I mean, the guy, if there was a book on how not to kill somebody, this is it. I mean, his behavior, he's talking openly. He's, you know, he doesn't have Google to search where he can buy cyanide. So he's literally making all these appearances and all these places. So after the whole jumping over the the coffee table scenario, he's like, you know what, we're going to head on home. And the kids get ready for bed. And... Right before Timothy goes night-night, reportedly he asked to eat some of his candy. And according to Ron, good old Timothy chose the pixie stick. So Ron hands him the pixie stick. And, (laughs) I mean, the kid is even having a hard time opening the straw. So Ronald literally takes it from his son, pries it open for him, and hands it back to him. And after tasting the candy, the cyanide candy, Timothy complains that it tasted like bitter. And Ron's like, oh, you're fine. Let me just give you some Kool-Aid to wash that taste away. And immediately, Timothy starts to complain that his stomach really hurts. I mean, the words, the kid is saying, daddy, daddy, my stomach hurts. And then he goes to the bathroom where he begins to vomit and convulse to the point where he's just vomiting and shaking. And Ronald would later state how Timothy goes limp in his arms. Now, there's conflicting information as to when Timothy dies. Some says that he died right there in the bathroom. Some information says he died on the way to the hospital. Others say he died actually at the hospital. Either way, this poor kid dies because of his father. Now, later on, when all is said and done, the pathologist who tests the pixie stick will report that the candy poor Timothy ate contained enough cyanide to kill two full-grown adults. And the cyanide found in the four other candies contained enough to kill three or four adults. I mean, this is just unreal. Now, of course, this immediately sends panic and shockwaves in the community. How could these children get cyanide? Who would dare to poison children like this? And, of course, the police began searching for more of the picky sticks, especially since they know that one of them was handed out to this boy, this 10-year-old boy, whilst trick-or-treating at the Bates house. And so the police, you know, gun it for the kid. And the parents can't seem to find it. They're absolutely panic-stricken to the point where they literally run to the kid's bedroom, swing open that door, and they see this poor child asleep with it in his hands. He's clutching it asleep. And the only reason why he didn't eat it was because, just like Timothy, he didn't have the strength to pull the staple out to eat the candy. So all the other kids are safe. It's just 
poor Timothy. So obviously the police begin to question Ron about the origins of the stick. And initially he plays dumb, like he didn't know where he got it from. And immediately the police become suspicious because they know that Ronald and Mr. Bates only ended up taking their children trick-or-treating down two streets because it started to rain. Now, after they go to the two streets, police, you know, knock on doors and they ask, what kind of candy did you hand out? They learn that none of the homes that Ron and Mr. Bates took the children handed out pixie sticks. So they're like, hmm, interesting. And then they're like, okay, you know what, Ron? We're going to have you walk the neighborhood and you let us know which house you think it was that handed it out. Well, he names the Melvin home. And when the police get to the Melvin home, they learn that the man that lived there was a man by the name of Courtney Melvin. And he was an air traffic controller at the William P. Hobby Airport. And the reason why he wasn't there, the house was dark that night, was because he actually was at work until 11 p.m. And the police were actually able to obtain 200 witnesses that placed him at work. So now the police aren't buying Ron's story. Then, after hearing how he was basically calling all his friends, talking to his co-workers about the cyanide and shopping around for it, all suspicions turn on Ron. In a background investigation of Ron, they learned that in the last 10 years, good old Ron held 21 jobs. 21 jobs. That's like the average of six months he managed to hold down a job. And that he was close to being fired at his current job, because he was under the suspicion of theft. In addition to this, his car was about to be towed. He had defaulted on several bank loans, and the family home had already been foreclosed on. And if that's not enough for the police to go, hmm, guys, then they discovered that Ron had taken out $30,000 on each of the children in the weeks, the months preceding Timothy's death. Then the police learn that just hours, literally hours after poor Timothy dies this painful, agonizing way, Ron begins his calls to the insurance company to inquire about collecting the policies he had taken out on his son. And if that's not enough, as soon as the police start questioning, start poking around the house, any guesses what they find? They find the same pieces of plastic from the pixie sticks that were given to the children around his home. So uh, that's, there's your evidence. There's your physical evidence right there. So basically it comes to no shock when on November 5th, they arrest for Timothy's death. In addition to capital murder, he is also charged with four counts of attempted murder because he handed out four more other pixie sticks. And naturally, Ron enters a plea of not guilty on all five counts. His trial begins in Houston on May 5th, 1975. And literally everyone comes out of the woodwork to testify against him, including a chemist who was acquainted with Ron. This chemist would go on to testify that in the summer of 1974, so this should tell you that Ron had been plotting this a whole year in advance and wanting to know about cyanide and how much would be fatal. Now, 
In addition to this chemist, a chemical supply salesman would also testify that Ronald was asking him how to purchase the cyanide. Friends and co-workers testified that in the months before Timothy's death, Ron basically was like, let's talk about cyanide today, guys, because he was expressing a very unusual interest in it. And he was talking about how much it would take to kill somebody. So, I mean... (laughs) This guy is unreal. Then his sister-in-law and brother-in-law go on to testify that on the day of his son's funeral, poor Timothy's funeral, Ron is talking about how he's going to use the money from Timothy's insurance policy to take a long vacation and to buy other items. So here you have old acquaintances coming on the woodwork. Here you have family saying, this is how he was behaving. Here you have coworkers and friends saying, this is what he was talking about. The icing on the cake is that his wife would testify that Timothy never asked to have the pixie stick, that Ron basically forced him to choose the pixie stick as his goodnight treat on Halloween. Now, his trial comes to head on June 3rd, 1975. So we're talking a very, very short, not even, a th- not even 30 days, this trial goes on. The jury takes 46 minutes to find Ron guilty of capital murder and the four counts of attempted murder. The jury then takes 71 minutes to sentence him to death by electrocution. So Ron's done. He's, he's, he's a goner. And right after he gets convicted, his wife files for divorce. She later remarries. And her new husband actually ends up adopting her daughter, Elizabeth. So Ron Ron gets to go to jail and basically wait for his execution. While he's in jail, the inmates on death row are like, this guy is fucking deplorable. And he was basically friendless. Nobody wanted anything to do with this man. And with good reason... And it, and it even got to the point where the inmates reportedly petitioned to hold an organized demonstration on his actual execution to t- express their actual hatred for them. I mean, they're like, we don't even fucking like him. We want to protest. Let's do this. Let's get together and talk about him. And then on top of everything, er- just... You look at this and you just... There are no words, but he finds words, okay? On the day of his execution, he he not only maintains his innocent, he expresses how he felt that the death penalty was wrong, and then he says, but I forgive all, and I do mean all, of those who have been involved in my death. God bless you, and may God's best blessings be always yours. I mean, this fucking guy is acting like he's a martyr and that he's an innocent victim on top of murdering his own son for money. It is unfathomable. But he gets to meet God on March 31st, 1987. So 10 years, his attorneys were able to draw this shit out for, you know, 10 years, nine years. And at 12.48 a.m., After being administered a lethal injection, Ron is pronounced dead. And while this is all going on, while he's being executed, 300 demonstrators actually gather outside the prison, cheering, trick-or-treat, (laughs) trick-or-treat. And hopefully, 
Ron heard them. I don't know. So that is the story of the man who almost killed Halloween, but he did kill his son, which is a terrible, heinous act across the board. And, you know, thanks to him, in the 80s, I remember my parents saying, you're not touching this until we inspect it. And, of course, that's when they decided to teach us the concept of the government tax of a portion of this is ours. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're teaching you taxes for the future. And, you know, they would take their favorites, although they didn't work a dime for it. But either way, I'm not better. Point is, because of this instance, people literally started taking trick-or-treating and the candy and, and, you know, making sure that their children were eating safe, untampered candy. Now, believe it or not, poison candy horror stories is not limited to the United States. I came across this story. And I just, I'm a little shocked, especially from the country that this happened in. In the 1980s, a, what sounds like basically a mafia, a Japanese mafia, called the Mystery Man with 21 Faces, was blackmailing a Japanese candy company with threats that they themselves would lace the candy with cyanide if the Japanese candy didn't offer the Japanese mafia large ransom monies. Even though it just seemed like a threat, stores ended up pulling large amounts of this candy from this candy company from their shelves, only to find that it wasn't poisoned. So basically they called their bluff and it wasn't true. But a few months later, the, the Japanese mafia blackmailers basically do the same thing and... Again, they pull the treats, and this time it's actually including candies and other goodies. Again, threatening to lace these things with cyanide. And they find out that, yes, some of the food, some of the candies did contain and were laced with cyanide. And, I I mean, this is just beyond... (laughs) <laughs> me speaking apparently I mean thankfully nobody died nobody got nobody took nobody consumed the cyanide but again just unfathomable thinking behind fucking degenerates sincerely and I mean this whole thing set off a massive investigation in Japan Apparently, there was like 125 different types of investigation. And the chief of police that was responsible for trying to figure this out ended up killing himself because he was ashamed of the fact that he failed to figure out who was behind this mystery man with 21 faces ploy. Now, today, America spends at least $2.6 billion dollars on Halloween candy. And I will be part of this. So, you know, mine is just a drop in the bucket, but there's a lot of drops collectively that become the 2.6 billion. And it is considered the second largest commercial holiday. And you know what? It's, I think, one of the favorite, the if not the best, holiday of them all. Now, this is all I have for you tonight. But if you're listening and you live in America, I asked that you please not be a Halloween Karen. Okay? Allow the tall, older kids to get the candy. I would rather have them, I think collectively, we would rather have the older children enjoying themselves trick-or-treating 
rather than vandalizing and reliving Halloween 1933. So, and plus too, you know, when we had foreign exchange students stay with us, they're, I mean, exceptionally tall foreign exchange students, and they look, you know, kind of older, but this might be their only opportunity to experience an actual Halloween. So, again, Halloween Karen, if you're out there, just let them trick-or-treat. All right, that is all I officially have for you guys tonight. Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. If you are interested and or curious and would like to join, send me a request. However, if you have a place that you would Sunday like to see where their dark corners are or have a specific tourist attraction in mind, send me an email at where their dark corners are at gmail.com. So until next time, please remember, only the few can find the beauty in the darkness, which is why I hope to meet you where the dark corners are. <laughs> <laughs>